a but lot. It's a shame. There's so many great books that will never go noticed because they're not marketed. There's great songs that'll never be heard because it's not marketed. There's great businesses that will never be discovered because it's not marketed. So this book is the essence of how a small business without any budget necessary can market and outmarket the alternatives, the inferior wow. alternatives. Welcome to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. How do people end up becoming an entrepreneur? How do they scale and grow their businesses? How do they plan for profit? Are they in it for life or are they building to exit? These and a myriad of other topics will be discussed to pull back the veil on the wizardry of successful and fascinating entrepreneurs. Hey, can you do me a favor? While you're listening to this podcast, can you open a web browser and type in officialnatashamiller.com? Yes, this is my brand new website that I built for you. Entrepreneurs that want to scale and grow their businesses. It's packed full of information, articles, blog posts, podcasts, and also you can download the free profit finder guide that helps you find more profit in your current business. You can get on the wait list for my digital course and be the first to know when my book Relentless is up for presale. Mike Michalowicz is the blockbuster best-selling author of books like Profit First, The Pumpkin Plan, and his latest book, Get Different. We talk about how he comes up with the ideas for his books, his biggest challenge, and how much sleep he gets. Now let's get right into it. So I did the Oprah vision board. I don't think she's the creator of the vision board, but somehow I think I was flipping through a magazine and there was Oprah saying like, create a board of all these things that you intend for your life. I'm like, oh, that's really smart. Make it pictorial. And what I'd been doing prior to that is I had built some businesses. I'd been very fortunate to sell them and got full of myself as a bit, aka a lot of bit cocky and thought I knew everything about entrepreneurship. I started another business and I was a calamity. It was just pure disaster. And I, I lost almost everything in my life, except for my family. But I lost like my house, but everything. And I remember just one form of therapy, and it's the cheapest form of therapy, by the way, is like a journal or diary. Just take down, write down your emotions and feelings. I started writing down all these things I didn't understand about entrepreneurship. And I started studying, well, what is the solution to these things I don't understand? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a book. And then so then Oprah was like, oh, what's your vision board? I'm like, I will make this into a book. And sure enough, I made it into a book. And then it then became a career. I fell in love with curating ideas, assembling them, and then honestly serving me. And I still own some businesses, my businesses, and serving others. I wondered if that was the trajectory of what happened. One of the first questions I typically ask entrepreneurs on the show is, what was your first business? And everyone loves to start with the candy selling and school and the lemonade oh, yeah. and or the mowing the lawns. What was the very first professional, you're an adult business that you started? Computer guy. I thought I was going to get one job out of college after I graduated. And that would be my career for life because that's what my father experienced. And that's what I was kind of programmed. If, that's probably not the right choice of words, but that's what I was expecting. I couldn't get the job. I remember going for the second interview for the dream job and, and getting walked out saying, you're really not Ernst & Young material. This was Ernst & Young. And I came home and got a job at a local small computer store slash integrator. They set up computers. And one night I went out for drinks with one of the guys that worked there. And I said, I'm better than this. And I should be the person in the back room counting money. That's what I thought the boss did. 
which the boss didn't do that. Cause when I started my own business, I realized, oh my gosh, in the back room is pure panic. Where am I going to get customers? How am I going to pay bills? It is worse back there than on the floor. But that's how I started. And I started a small computer business, setting up computers for people, for small businesses. And that ended up being an extraordinary experience because I started when I was 24. It was a very fear-driven experience in the beginning. I got married also and had my first son already. And uh, I was like, I got to feed three mouths. I don't know what I'm doing, but man, I'm not going to stop doing whatever. And so I, I worked relentlessly. Fear ultimately became confidence. Like, it's like, oh, I can see a pattern here. And then it became a love for entrepreneurship. I fell in love with it over the years and just thirsted to do it ever since. It can be an addiction. I think <laughs> I may be addicted to the entrepreneurial well, yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. And the addiction part is a problem too. So I went through the addiction. I now have respect for it. I went through a period where it was like, oh, it was all about do more, do more, work more. I was boastful at times. Like I remember talking, I was on the phone with this one guy and he said, oh man, I worked so hard last night. I was up till three o'clock in the morning. And I went, I was up till four. I thought that was the win. And I'm like, I am such a tool. I am such a freaking tool. I just don't get it. And I don't know if I fully get it yet. I think I'm closer. I don't think addiction of any sort is healthy, but I think there is a propensity or thirst to do something in that channeled and balanced, right? It can be very productive. I'm addicted to the ideation and the creation and the- So much fun. To have an idea and then have it come to life. I'm not addicted- It's so cool. And let's talk about sleep because you just mentioned this. On some clubhouses that I was listening to, I was hearing entrepreneurs saying, yeah, I only need four hours of sleep. Well, I only need one. And I got on there and I'm like, people, that is not sustainable. That is not healthy. That actually isn't cool. Like I have a profitable, somewhat due to you, Mike, multi-million-dollar business, and I get eight hours at least sleep and always have. So You are my peeps. I got to pull up my my sleep tracker. Yeah. Stop it with the boasting of not needing sleep. It's not true. Anyway. I got a hundred percent last night. That's my tracker. (laughs) I don't even need a tracker. I believe in sleep so much now that it's perhaps in the last year has been my, as a side project, my biggest curiosity. Mm. So I've been researching and me researching is a little bit strong choice of words. I've been listening to podcasts. I've been reading books on the subject. There's a masterclass program. I've studied that and testing. So that's why I compiles research and my sleep quality has improved. It's a couple of key factors. One is alcohol, even a glass of wine F's up my sleep. So I'm like, no booze during the week. It's just not worth it. On the weekend, on a Friday or Saturday, I'll have a drink or two. And I also realize it's going to compromise my sleep. But by not drinking during the week, it's been a game changer. The second thing is room temperature is a big deal. And cooling, I have this thing called an Uller. It cools from below your bed. I and saw I, that. Oh. It's awesome. It's awesome. And the sleep quality is I amazing. I just sleep with my window open. Does that count? Well, in San Francisco, no. But in New Jersey, yeah. <laughs> in the winter. In the winter. In the winter, New Jersey. <laughs> so, um, noise. Yeah. So every morning, my wife and I wake up and we're like, what was your rating? It's almost like a friendly competition oh, going on. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And she's crushing me. She crushes me. She's like four <laughs> hours of deep sleep. I'm like, that's not even human. I think you died last night. <laughs> It's the best. Okay. So I wasn't going to bring this up, but I'm going to do it now. About 2015, 2014 in my business, we had a lot of revenue, a couple million dollars in revenue. I paid myself a salary, very 
little salary. And my source of compensation and what filled me up was doing the work, having the business, hiring other people to work for me, employing artists and musicians to perform at big events. Like that filled my cup. And I didn't care, didn't notice, didn't look at my PL, didn't know we weren't having any profit. To me, we were profitable. Hmm. And when I realized that we weren't, I scrambled and somehow got led to profit first. I'm the kind of person that when I'm presented with an option for solving, I read it from cover to cover. I take notes. Not only I do that, I summarize them. I kind of chunk them down and then I just take action immediately. Oh my gosh. You're the exception to the rule. I love that. I love it. I'm a little bit of a weirdo. But it was only then after reading your book, never in my life up until then. And again, I was a couple million dollars in on revenue. Did I consider? I didn't, I, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but whatever, I've grown. But ever since putting into practice uh, what I learned in Profit First, and I loved the pumpkin plan, which I oh, read after, you. I have been profitable. So thank you, Mike. You're welcome. There's a label for that, by the way, doing millions and not being profitable. It's called being human. <laughs> that is like, that's the normal trajectory is there's this belief. I had it until I implemented profit first for myself. I consider myself ground zero. I did it for myself now, 15 years ago, 14 years ago. But there's this belief that I had that perhaps you had and many entrepreneurs still have that one day a switch will flip. If I just keep growing this, I'll be profitable. I'm this close. I'm one big client away, one opportunity away, and everything's going to fix itself. And it never happens. In fact, the reverse happens. We start trying to sell our way through this. So we put more burden on our company. Sales is burden because sales is obligation. Every time you sell something, you're obligated to deliver on it. The more we sell, the more we're obligated. As a small business owner, it's more weight on our shoulder. So you see these businesses growing, but it's very unhealthy because the owner has to work harder and longer and more, put more of themselves out there. So it's exhausting. And there's no profitability. So now you know, there's more expense. So a bad month can be really devastating. We didn't land any clients. It's like, holy cow, I got to refinance my house to cover <laughs> payroll. Right. So more sales is more burden. Sales is a good thing when it's in equilibrium or balance with profitability. So if profit is baked into every transaction, now sales can fuel a very healthy, sustainable organization. And the nice thing is I really feel profit first is not just a long-term fix, it's an immediate impact. When yes. you implement it within a, a day, you're like, oh, you feel it. And within- Yeah, my accountant looked at me and she was like, you want me to open all these accounts? I'm like, yeah, right, oh, yes. Good one for you. For taxes, one for profit, yeah. I mean, why not? Why not do it if we haven't been successful before? Some, uh, traditional accounts are kind of the bane of Profit First, not because they're bad people or something, they just don't get it. They've been trained historically. Yeah, they do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. They, listen, they went through college for this. They've been trained on this. We're told profit comes last. It's the bottom line. It's the year end. All these terms that say, don't worry about it until later, which while that makes logical sense in a formula, it is horrible behavioral sense. It's human nature. When something comes last, it's not important. So for most entrepreneurs, it's something that's going to happen later, later, and it never happens. What we do is we flip the formula. And by taking our profit first, it's baked into every transaction. By sending these multiple accounts, you see what the money's intended use is before you spend it. It's a major behavioral shift. Mm -hmm. But for traditional accountants, they're like, you know, the Spocks of the world, you will, they're like, that's not logical. It's not logical. It's behavioral. It happens to fulfill the logic of how to get the profit. But yeah, you it, have to flip your script. Yeah. It addresses human behavior. So 
you might see this. I've been on the Inc. 5000 three times in a row in a year. Not one person ever has ever said, wow, congratulations, but are you profitable? Oh, yeah. I would love to know of the 5,000 that are on this list. Two. I give two are profitable. <laughs> I, here's the thing. It's a wonderful recognition for business growth, but- It's it, a great tool it, it, too for marketing and- It's a great marketing tool for the, the companies backing it. It is rewarding cancerous growth. There's growth that can become deadly. And sadly, like showing that my revenue percent. five years ago compared to today has increased by a magnitude sounds wonderful until you realize this is a disease, that the business has become so unhealthy. It's the sales itself that is eating the health of the organization. I wish they had a new Inc. 5000 said the profitable Inc. 5000. I've suggested and, it to them. Listen, I understand their motive. And I think that it's a great organization and a great yeah. mission. But they're looking for companies. They're looking to market the company so they can represent them and serve them and so forth. It's a great way of filtering and getting these applications of not 5,000, but 50,000 different companies that you can now solicit. Genius. But if they did the profitable Inc. 5,000, first of all, they'd be soliciting clients that they can't serve because these clients already got it figured out. Yeah. Secondly, those companies will be radically different. You won't see companies with hyper sales growth. You'll see them with consistent, healthy organizational growth. You may not see these numbers on the sales line quadrupling or a hundred times bigger, but you will see the bottom line growing and growing. And you'll see comfort from the owner that's living a lifestyle they define for themselves. And they might be getting great sleep. And they probably don't need to open the window in San Francisco to get sleep. <laughs> okay. When did you decide or how did this happen that you had a profit first accounting method and now there are approved accounts? Oh, like certified folks? How the heck did that happen? Was that just a brilliant entrepreneurial mind thing that happened or did someone say, no. Hey Mike, I think yeah. this is a good idea. I'll take option two for a thousand dollars, please. <laughs> it was uh, someone going, dude, uh, do you realize what you're sitting on? Looking back at it, it looks like a strike of genius. Like, Oh my God, this guy could foresee this demand. No, here's what happened. I struggled with profitability. I lived a, such a stressful life of how am I going to pay the bills month to month? And to the point of depression, I mean, serious depression. And I was like, okay, I got to fix this permanently because sales and financial stress results to personal stress. There is an exact equation or equilibrium. So I said, I got to fix my financial stress and that will alleviate at least a lot of stress that I'm experiencing, I believe. What's the system? Then I looked at all the historical systems that existed and curated the best elements. So mom's envelope system where you divide money up, the pay yourself first principle that was taught in the richest man of Babylon, think and grow rich of how to allocate and manage funds so you know where it's going before you spend it. I took all these different elements and I packaged it and said, okay, this is all great. And it applies to personal finance. Now let me do one more twist, the Rubik's cube and apply it to business. That's when I was like, holy shmanoli. That's the exact words I use. <laughs> exact words. I hope holy so. shmanoli. <laughs> I got something here and I started to do it for my business. And then I started to be profitable. And listen, my business was struggling at the time on the sales side and I was still profitable. I was like, wow. Then I started to write it. I wrote for the Wall Street Journal at the time. I wrote an article. I wrote other articles that I thought were impactful and, and of service. And I'd hear a little dribble drabble. I write an article on profit first and my inbox starts blowing up. That was my TEDx speech equivalent. I'm like, what, what the heck's going on here? People are like, dude, this works. My gosh, I'm deploying this. And uh, that's when I said, I got to write a book. I wrote a book. I distributed the manuscript out to people before publishing it to get feedback. And the first feedback was, I love this. And who's the accountant who supports it? And I was like, what? 
The second one, I love this. Who's the bookkeeper supports this? I'm like, what? <laughs> and then uh, the third one, I'm like, holy schmanoli part due. I got something here. So I started an organization right when the book released called Prop First Professionals. Today, we have over 600 certified members globally that implement Profit First with businesses. There's over 600,000 readers of Profit First or implementations, I should say. There's over a million distributed copies. There's 600,000 businesses that we estimate that have implemented Profit First. Most do it on their own. The book allows you to do it on your own. But certain portions say, I want to make sure I'm doing it right. And I want that trainer at the gym equivalent. I want someone walking me through the exercises and they hire Profit First professionals. And this is one of your current businesses. Yes. Well, I have six companies that I'm a shareholder in. I own, I'm a shareholder in Profit First Professionals, and then I have other businesses too. Okay. Well, congratulations and really cool. And that's a, that's <laughs> a great lesson to entrepreneurs is you can come up with a lot of great, amazing things, but also you can take what people are telling you, what your team is telling you, what your clients are telling you, and turn that into a new line of business, a new division, a new something or another. Amen. My observation is I don't consider myself as a good visionary for the future. I'm not a futurist. I don't consider myself particularly smart, but I do observe trends and I listen to people and I look for, I call them common threads. If I hear the same pattern over and over again, at a certain point it clicks and then I rewind and say, oh my gosh, this is a pattern. How do I apply my business or whatever I'm looking to achieve to that pattern? Chances are I'm going to catch that momentum. And that seems to consistently work for me. So, okay. I thought you had two multi-million dollar businesses. You just told me you have a few as shareholder. Talk about your current businesses and what role you have in them. Sure. So Profit First Professionals, I'm a shareholder. And I used to call myself an entrepreneur business owner. I just think that's equated to hustle and grind. I actually abhor those words that there's this belief that entrepreneurship is about sacrifice everything in your life for this business. There's not... The goal of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is have a vision for a business and organize resources, choreograph the elements, people, technology, and so forth to make that vision a reality. Mm-hmm. You take a risk by trying to do this, but it doesn't mean you should be doing the work. In fact, I believe our biggest job is to be providers of jobs, not to do the job. So I like the term shareholder because shareholder implies that I give strategic influence and decision in the business and I reap the rewards for having the vision and taking the risk. So I have Profit First Professionals. I'm a shareholder. I have another business. It has a shell name. It's called Obsidian, but it's my author platform. There's eight employees. We have a president for our company. There's a managing director for Profit First Professionals. And then I have four more companies that have what we call licensees. Licensees are someone that has taken the intellectual property that I've developed. They've deployed it in their business. And we have a phantom position, therefore mitigating any downside, but we receive a percentage of Revenue, actually, not even profitability, a revenue top line, because that's easy. And so we have Get Different. That's my newest book. Yeah. We have Justin Wise is leading that company, and it's off to an amazing start. Uh, Clockwork is our most successful company of all of them. It just is the owner of the business. Adrian is just the master in applying the Clockwork business concept to her own business and scaled. So I have a license there. And then we have one for the Pumpkin Plan. We have another one for a new book I haven't even written yet that's it's going to be released in about two years, but we already started the company about corporate culture and so forth, small business culture. So giving, that's my you're business. You're giving me all these great ideas for what I already have in the back of my mind planned for the book that I'm releasing in March. 
And I love it. And one of my questions for you that I was really curious about is in business, are you an author first? Are you a speaker first? What is it that you kind of today have your eye on? Author and only, and it's been that way ever since I wrote my first book. I woke up one morning and said, oh my gosh, I'm an author. And to me, what that is, is a curator of ideas. I don't consider myself a creator or inventor. I consider myself that I synthesize all this external information and can package it in a way that really simplifies it. I believe actually that's my mission is to simplify the entrepreneurial journey. Thank you for that. You're you're welcome. And then put it out there. So synthesize, simplify, and then produce. I happen to also speak because I'm an author. I happen to also be an entrepreneur, which I love, but I'm an author. And it is interesting. I call it the Uber test. When I'm in an Uber, it's fascinating to see the response. When when I used to take a ride and someone's like, what do you do? Like, oh, I'm a business owner. Like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. You know, oh, I'm a speaker. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you say you're an author, it's like they double pump the brakes. You must hit your Everyone face leans the... in, right? They're like, yeah, they're like, you're an author, like a real Who are author. you? Who are you? You're magical and mystical. Yeah. Because if anyone can write a book and a lot of people choose to, I think few commit their lives to that vocation. Every morning I wake up, I am writing. Every morning I wake up, I am trying to distribute or be a spokesperson for the books because I believe dollar for dollar, like your book, dollar for dollar, there's no greater value. I could interview you for five hours, but I won't be able to disseminate all that knowledge that you've extracted from your own brain on your own accord and packaged into a book for 25 bucks. I think there's nothing greater, in my opinion, than authorship and the ability to educate, to entertain, to engage. And that's why I'm very proud to be an author. I hear the passion and I feel like I don't have to ask the question, but I'm going to because there could be authors and people out there that do that daily work but it's not filling them up. It's not the burning fire in the belly. Do you love it? Do you have a passion for it? Oh my God. Is it the ideas or is it the language coming? Like for you, what is it that fills you up? Yeah. So what fills me about being an author and every day I'm writing, like this morning, six to 7 a.m., I have as part of my routine is write time. And that's what I call off-season writing. On-season when I have a book, a deadline, and then it's like, you know, four hours a day. And in between that is research and promotion. So like what we're doing now, I consider promotion mm-hmm. for me selfishly, hopefully it's a service, great service to your audience. And then the other part is research, like testing and playing with ideas. And some of the research you actually get paid for. Like as you do it, you serve a company doing something, they pay you to give them the knowledge, but you're also observing their feedback. But for me, what I enjoy the most are certain moments is when I find an idea out there in the wild and see that common thread, that's a trend I have, is to look for a pattern, and then able to translate that into text. I actually just came upon one in the last couple of months and now I've been testing. I was like, oh, this is a big deal. And I put it in a future book. I insert that. The other thing is when I'm going through the editing process and the majority of writing is actually not writing, it's rewriting. There's a book called On Writing Well and it says the essence of writing is rewriting. And that's the God honest truth. We First we do verbal vomit and then we got to kind of call it down to what the gold is. And sometimes when I get in the final editing phase and I'm reading through my own book, there's moments that I laugh out loud because I'm like, oh, that's funny. And (laughs) that feels really good that even though I've read my own words like for the hundredth time, that it still kind of triggers entertainment for me. And I hope it does the same for others. I I believe my mission is not just to educate, but to keep people engaged through entertainment. And that that blend of storytelling and humor, uh, my sense of humor at least, and education when done right, I'm really proud of the impact it has. Great. Thank you for explaining that. One other explanation I need from you is when you're writing, what tools are you using? Keyboard, Mac, 
writing with a pencil, iPad? What is your so where does um, the flow come from? Yeah, so I like Google Docs actually because of its portability. I work on a PC at home. I have three offices. I have a home office where I write most of the time. I have an office office where I broadcast where we are now. I have another office, which is just kind of more of a managerial space. Um, and I do a lot of writing on airplanes. So I actually have a flight later this afternoon for four hours. I will crank this afternoon because I don't want to talk to anyone. I just put my music on, which means at home I'm on a PC and work, but I like the iPad, so I'm on Mac. And the Google Docs is great. It's portable. The problem is my publisher, which is like a mainstream publisher. I know now, they all wanted in Word. What is up? Gobby and freaking Word. You need to change with the times. Come yeah, on. And you got to track changes for everything, which is overwhelming. You so can track my, changes in a Google Doc. I know, but they track changes through the entire lineage of writing. So there's like one sentence that's been mauled over 10 times. I can't read, read the freaking thing. It's like the word the and then red line and purple. I'm like the purple, like what the hell's going on here? Mm-hmm. And it's not Word as great as the tool is. And I think it's a great tool. Yeah. Once you try to port it from PC to Mac, it just goes to the crapper, the crapper. Today, I'm actually doing editing. Starting at 3.30 today, I'm in editing for four hours on this flight. And I'm looking forward to it because it's fun. I don't look forward to the track change nightmare. Yep, me either. Hate it. Okay, let's talk about the book, Get Different. What is so, it about? What do you love about it? What should I love about it? You should love that. It's the best book ever. Better than Profit First. Better than Profit First. <laughs> to me, it's like a band. You know, some bands think their best song is XYZ, but there's also a hit. And damn it, you better show up and play a hit. For me so far, the big hit, my Hotel California, is Profit First. <laughs> I'm still trying to write, you know, Take It Easy or something. And maybe Get Different is the Take It Easy. Here's what I think is important about it is I did a survey of audiences. I continue to do this, but I started about seven years ago asking people, are you better than the competition? And inevitably, everyone raises their hand affirmatively. Of course, I'm better than the competition. And I agree it's true because small business, the business owners installed in the business themselves, we're integrated in some capacity, which means we're providing the service or doing the sales. And if we're engaged like that, chances are it's better service, more responsive in some facet we're better than the big boxes for sure and the jiffy jobs of the world and the franchises. We're better in some capacity, I would argue, when the owner's actively involved. And these businesses, even if they competed, they're probably better in different ways. And so my argument was, or my realization was, if you're better in the competition, we have a responsibility to get noticed. In fact, if you don't get noticed, that's a disservice because the client's going to hire someone else that's inferior to you. That's their problem, but it's our fault. Marketing is the ultimate act of kindness. and. With that belief, that thesis, I was like, well, then how do we market effectively? And so what I established was there's three elements. We have to differentiate our message, meaning it cannot be the white noise that's out there. You won't see it. It has to be noticeable. But noticeable just gets attention for milliseconds. Then it must be attractive, meaning it must speak to the interest of the target. It must compel them. It must engage them or entertain them. But there's got to be a reason they feel a desire to stay. And then it must direct them to do something with this. So don't just say, hey, this is amazing, and then walk away. Get them to say, this is amazing, and then here's what you can do as the next step. That's the essence of it. It's called the DAD framework, differentiate, attract, and direct. And I think for all businesses, but particularly authors, I work with these authors every morning. I do a sprint from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. There's 10 or 15 authors on there, and I've read some of their books, and they are freaking amazing. I mean, these people have devoted time to perfecting 
the sentence. It's not books, prose. I mean, it's just unbelievably good. And then they don't get noticed because they don't market and they don't use this process. So, you know, it's that I, I different wish. brain frame, right? That creative artist, I know, a sales and marketer. A lot. It's a shame. There's so many great books that will never go noticed because they're not marketed. There's great songs that'll never be heard because it's not marketed. There's great businesses that will never be discovered because it's not marketed. So this book is the essence of how a small business without any budget necessary can market and outmarket the alternatives, the inferior um, alternatives. That gave me some goosebumps. Thank you. Nice. So what is your biggest challenge now? I'd say in business, but really your business is writing and then the marketing of that writing. So what is a big challenge today for you? Uh, a big challenge is that's happening imminently is I've written my first children's book. It's kind of positioned behind me right there. I've never done that before. I had uh, enough readers of Profit First say, oh my gosh, I wish my kid had this. I wish my child was experiencing this or a child of my life, you know, my grandchild, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's always been a little intrigue for me to do it. And so last year I devoted to writing a children's book. It's, it's a whole different experience. Illustrations are very important. The way you write is very important. It has to be digestible and relatable. We tested it with teachers and we're releasing it literally in three or four days. So entering a new genre. Ooh, of, of scary. Yeah. And exciting. Oh, it's totally but terrifying. Like, it's, yeah. And every book I write at the very end, it's always the same thing. Leading up to it, I'm like, I put everything I got into this. This is the best of me. And then a day later, I'm like, this is shit. It's the best of me and it's pure shit. I wrote garbage. And I feel every book, I'm like, uh, if a single person reads this, it's actually a disservice. <laughs> and uh, I feel that way about Get Different when I released it. And I feel that way right now about my money bunnies. I'm like, oh, I am a piece of garbage. Why do I even exist? And then I get through that phase and then I finally just release it and say, it is the best of me as of that moment. The world can make a decision how they feel. And you know, we'll see how people feel. And the marketing of that is completely different. You're stepping off a cliff into unknown territory, which with all the rest of your books, with the success you've had, you've got a little bit of ego bubble happening and it's about ready to get tested, right? Oh, totally. I, I remember when I released my third book, it was called Surge. The ego was there. I had released Toilet Paper Entrepreneurs, <laughs> my first book. I sold 100,000 copies. I'll just hustle and grind. My second book was The Pumpkin Plan. And it was this little engine that could, it kept on marketing and going and going. And I got a publishing deal from it and all this stuff. And then I'm like, I have arrived. I am the author of authors. I at least surge to deadly silence because my big fat ego got in the way. I thought I was all that. I'm picking some of my favorite authors. Malcolm Gladwell ain't all that. JK Rowling ain't all that. It's the next book that determines who you are. There's no question. There's a baked in community that loves those authors and will buy regardless. But my gosh, your next song better be a hit. Like once you release Hotel California, you better bring and take it on, uh, take it easy on next. Because if you put a bummer out there, you can lose a community quickly. The children's space is new to me. I have a baked in community that may buy the book because they've read my work and give it to a child, but it definitely is a whole new space. And hopefully Hotel California for kids is coming out. We'll see. Great. And the last thing is within all this writing, you have something going for your next book. Do you have something going for the book after that on the book after that? I'm wanting to see what the pattern for growth in your mind is. Oh, yeah. So I do. So Money Binds is coming out in four days. I have my next book that I'm editing on this next flight that's coming out in summer 2022. I have my next next book, which is about employee culture, company culture, which is scheduled for 2023. I don't have even a publishing deal for it yet. It's going to happen regardless of my publisher. 
I strongly suspect my publisher will go for it. They choose not to. I already have another way I'm going to publish it. So that's not a concern. And then 2024 and out, I don't know the books I'll be writing at those times, but I'm accumulating about 23 other book concepts right now where some of them are very far along in research. And I'm going to cherry pick, say, this is the right one for me in the writing process and the right one for my community. When I get that match, I have these to pick out of. I have a hint, a guess what I think it is, but we'll make that determination in 2022, what the 2024, 2025 book is. Mike gave us a very spirited account of his life as an author and also gave us a spoiler alert for his new children's book and what he's planning all the way through the year 2025. For more information on Mike, go to the show notes where you're listening to this podcast. Want to know more about me? Go to my website, officialnatashamiller.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you loved the show. If you did, please subscribe. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review where you're listening to this podcast now. I'm Natasha Miller, and you've been listening to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. 